Hello and welcome back to One for Paul, the show where I, the original non-pop culturist, get inducted into the world of pop culture by my friends, comedians, and nemeses. Joining me today is my nemesis, me. Just me again. This is the this is a solo episode. Glad you guys are enjoying these. Looking forward to it. This week we are doing Bar Trek, the story of a pub crawl gone horribly, horribly wrong. I mean, welcome to Star Trek Discovery. This is the 2017, I hesitate to say remake, sequel show? Uh, new show, new version of new Star Trek from 2017. Covering the pilot today, episode one of season one. Now, I am a huge, huge fan of the next generation, TNG, to those of us in the know. And to a lesser extent, a fan of Voyager and Deep Space Nine, which I sort of grew up with and I still have fond memories of, though I haven't really seen those a lot recently. Now, uh, I have a few misgivings that have been, that I've inherited from my Trekkie friends. They have warned me staunchly against watching this show. They have informed me that it's not, it's not a good Star Trek it's not, it doesn't feel like a Star Trek. They don't like it. They think that this is give it a miss, watch something else instead, which we can get into later. Uh, but overall, the series has really sort of passed me by. I guess uh, come 2017, I wasn't super, I wasn't super looking forward to it. It came out, everybody hated it, and I went, uh, I guess uh, it's not for me then, and I ended up watching something else. And I guess going through what I'm expecting from it, I'm expecting something closer to the newer movies, uh, like the new movies about uh, the original series guys. Uh, I never really watched original series, so I don't know. I, I guess I'm expecting it's more action-oriented with lots of visual effects, and uh, I really hope that's not at the expense of having a good story. I also hope that I like it more than my Trekkie buddies, because why would I go into something hoping to hate it, is, is my opinion generally. So having covered what I thought before having seen it, let's fade in to some Klingon narration while the camera pans out from what looks like an eclipse of some kind, but is actually this this Klingon's eye. Uh, seems, seems Mr. Klingon is a tad upset, uh, uncharacteristically for Klingons, I think you'll find. And he appeals for unity in the face of their sworn enemy, the Federation. Well, that's just undercut a lot of what happens later. We'll, we'll get into that. Cut to a desert where a captain and her first officer are lost. But actually, they're not lost. They're exactly where first officer Burnham wants them to be, right here at the well. Uh, they have this alien species there that they're willing to help called the Corpusculans. That's a name. Uh, whose egg sacs are threatened by a drought that will last for 89 years unless the Federation can use a rifle to shoot bullets into this well here. Uh, this works. You know, guns guns just solve problems, I guess, now. And I get the sense that someone worked really, really hard to make these costumes and effects for this one medium shop of the Corpusculin. And man, this looks good. It looks slightly gooey, but also really good. They spend the whole time that they walk uh, to the well talking about what they're about to do, and then they do that thing. And, alright, could have used with less dialogue here, I guess, because it's a gorgeous shot. I mean, 
it's a really, really nice location. The costumes are wonderful. I got a nice sense of what's going on. But I did get this sense the whole time of, wait, which one is the captain again? Because if it's either of them, then they've got a really unsubordinate first officer. But oh no, there's a storm coming, which means that the transporters can't transport, and the communicators can't communicate. Fortunately, they can leave marks in the sand here, and that way the ship's sensors can see them. And here it is now, and honestly... I kind of like the stubbier design of this ship. It seems like a much smaller ship than what I'm used to from the NCC-1701D, and indeed the original NCC-1701. Makes me think this is a this is sort of uh, closer to the scale of something like the USS Voyager from the show of the same name. Which, you know, I like a smaller ship. That's great. Looking forward to it. Cut to the proper intro sequence where there's the there isn't much to say about it beyond this is a super lovely thing at the graphic art style and sort of mix of sci-fi and renaissance and x-ray microscopy sort of feel and uh stuff exploding in the sense of showing us the internal parts of the stuff i i really like it it's a it's a super classy we then open properly to our more classic opening where the first officer tells us What's happening on this star date? And um, and also on the Earth date, which is hardly traditional, but, ah, all right, new show, I'm okay with that. Maybe new audiences, they're like, what star date is that? I need an explanation, please. So it's uh, May 11th, 2256, the Sunday, and they're here to fix the interstellar relay and figure out what damaged it. The science officer believes that the relay wasn't damaged naturally. Uh, The first officer, seemingly dismissive, also has misgivings about the situation, which she expresses to the captain. Turns out that there is, in fact, something out there, and their sensors can just barely make out that the thing is some kind of... thing. But it is scattering their optical processors. Fortunately, there's another optical processor that they've ignored until now. Their eyes. And they got a telescope here, like a classic look-through-the-viewfinder telescope in the ready room, which they used to look at the thing. Meaning that either the ship's sensors are really, really, really short-range, or this telescope is really, 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 really good. But since there's no shuttle aboard that's maneuverable enough to get a closer look, and since the ship can't get through this tightly packed uh, rock stuff in the ring of this planet where the object of interest is, I mean, the only reasonable course of action is for the first officer to put herself in mortal danger for the sake of a flyby in a spacesuit with an arbitrary time limit installed into the spacesuit. Thanks, scriptwriters. Thanks for the time limit. The captain agrees to this for some reason, but just a flyby, right? Just, Just a flyby. That's what the captain says, just a flyby. Then the first officer agrees, just a flyby. Now, if I've learned anything from my journey through pop culture, it's that there is no circumstance in which this will just be a flyby. Some kind of shenanigans are about to occur. No question. Cut to Commander Burnham, sitting, uh, suiting up in a spacesuit as the ensign here runs her through her pre-flight somewhat sarcastically. Uh, note that they check her oxygen is doing okay after, after... She's already outside the ship. 
I might have wanted to check that before entering the vacuum of space, personally. Uh, the EV looks pretty, it looks a bit goofy, I, I will be honest, it looks a bit top-heavy, but it also looks like a functional piece of spacefaring equipment, like this could exist in real life, so yeah, great, I like that. So she floats clear of the ship, then fires up the thrusters, which have a 10-second countdown for some reason. I, I mean, I guess them's the rules, right? You have to, if there's, if there be rockets, there be countdown. The whole sequence is completely gorgeous as well. I, there's a super far shot where she just looks like a tiny little blue speck against the background of space with the ship on one side and the asteroids, or, uh, I guess they're asteroids, they're part of the planet's rings. So the, the debris field, whatever that is. That's on the left, and it's just so pretty. There's also the super half-screen close-up to the side of her face and her eyes reflecting everything from space. In the, It's just so gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful cinematography. The composition is is, is painting-like. It's, it's the only thing that I can say. Wonderful, wonderful look. Uh-oh. Looks like they can't communicate. Like, you know, they knew they couldn't, and uh, they... All right. I guess they don't have a wire long enough where they couldn't come up with like a bunch of ways to like let's put a couple of small relays between us so we can commute it feels like the kind of situation that comes up rather a lot in starfleet they, they probably should have a solution for this at some point right but nonetheless they don't and uh the commander gets close to this object here and starts having a real good look while describing what she's seeing i guess she's uh, recording on some kind of little action cam somewhere and maybe just hopes that her comms will come back online at some point, so keeps talking on the off chance that uh, her transmission gets through. Good idea. Good choice. Looks like this, uh, it's a nicely nicely built ship. It's very intricate, ornate. She describes it as, I'm not sure if it's been constructed or carved. Yeah, I think maybe if it's carved, it's constructed. But yeah, nitpicking aside, she's not wrong. It's a cool looking thing. And as she is exploring, she decides to land upon it, at which point it extends its wings. I guess the thing has wings of some kind. And she meets a friend. Hello, friend. I see you have Klingon insignia carved into your spacesuit there. What a nice batleth. May I have a, a closer look? Oh, oh, too close. Too close. Sorry. Uh, listen, uh, sorry about that. I just, I didn't want that close. Oh, no, there go my thrusters. Sorry, I seem to have... Oh, uh, hmm. Yeah, I seem to, uh, you just keep that batleth through your chest there. That's fine. I'm gonna go now. Bye. Also, great thing they labeled all of the stuff, like a Klingon insignia on the arm and a batleth. And they, they pointed out through her viewfinder that, look, it's a batleth. Because the suit has a batleth detection circuit, I guess. But otherwise, I would have thought, hey, is this a Reaper from Mass Effect? Because it looks like a Reaper from Mass Effect. Uh, her, her new friend does try to kill her. But she kills him first, and then flies off into space. Now seemingly unconscious. And to make matters worse, the timer that means that she dies when it's out of time is nearly out of time. Oh no, who could have ever seen this happen? Back on the Klingon ship, they're having a funeral for the guy she just killed. I do love the detail here, like the cultural 
uh, insight where instead of what we might do to close someone's eyes for their funeral, they open up the guy's eyes and say, I see you as you see the end. That is extraordinarily Klingon, and I love everything about it. The assembled Klingons start yelling uh, as the coffin is attached to the outside of their ship's hull. Also, super fucking metal and super fucking Klingon to me. I like it. Uh, We cut to a Vulcan educational facility where a young human girl, you can tell because her ears are round and not Vulcan pointy, is taking an examination, which doubles as exposition for us, the audience. Thanks, exposition. Uh, I guess she's got some PTSD from having watched her family die in front of her in a Klingon raid, and I guess the Vulcans still don't get that it's okay for humans to have emotions, and, you know, maybe it's a bit fucked up to insist on Vulcan-like detached logic from a traumatized child toward the thing which traumatized them. You know, I feel like this might be a flashback, perhaps to Commander Burnham's past, question mark? I guess she was raised by Vulcans? Okay. So she's awake now, in real life and not in flashback land, and refuses life-saving treatment while it's saving her life. She instead rushes up to the bridge, where she notices that there is no red alert, despite the fact of, hey, hang on, Klingons, though. And she convinces the captain to go to red alert, because, hey, look, there's Klingons, though. Klingons? But there haven't been Klingons in over a hundred years. Wait, didn't we just see her remembering it? Like, this is within her lifetime. How old is she? There's some Klingons around. I guess what they mean is there's not, like, a Klingon empire. It's a bunch of uh, warring states, I guess, or something like that. The Klingons are not around, for the most part. Except when they come to kill this lady's family. Which, you know, not great. Not ideal for her. Anyway, no time for that. It's time to aim guns at the Klingon thing. Uh, Because they don't want to actually shoot it. They just want to aim guns at it as if they're going to, to, to sort of force them out of hiding. So that makes the Klingon ship uncloak. Uh, cut to later, uh, aboard the Klingon ship as the Federation tries to hail them. Now, I get that they're Klingons, and that they would speak Klingon, but that's a lot of Klingon that you're expecting your actors to speak through heavy facial and dental prosthetics. It's maybe just have them speak English with smatterings of Klingon here and there, you know, like they did in TNG. Though granted, if you could find a lot of actors who just speak Klingon, because Klingon is a is a pretty well-established conlang now, like a, a constructed language. So people really do speak, like it's not a complete language, it's not a living language, but people speak Klingon. So, I mean, maybe they found people who could. I I don't know. It doesn't sound great to me here, though. It sort of feels like it's getting in the way. Like, I have to read the subtitles, and it feels like I'm reading a novel at this point, and and I'm not watching the characters. As it is, uh, it's sort of difficult to connect to. And, you know, it seems like they need a new torchbearer, because that's the guy that the commander killed earlier was the torchbearer. And this guy volunteers, but he isn't part of any house. And also, his skin is white, so he's an inferior person. Social commentary, folks. Uh, and But he thinks he is worthy, not because of his family or skin color, but be, because he, you know, he just believes so hard, and if you really believe in yourself, then you can do anything. 
Uh, he proves this faith by severely burning his hand and being all stoic about it. In uh, actually kind of a cool scene, it continues to feel kind of kind of heavy metal and kind of Klingon, and that's kind of great. Uh, this pleases the cult leader, who lets him light the beacon and hands him Batleth. The Klingons definitely do feel pretty good, but they don't feel very Star Trek in a lot of ways. They feel like they're more out of Warhammer 40k, like right down to the armor, which would not look out of place on a Chaos Space Marine. It's uh, not sure. I'd have to see some more episodes to really gauge it, but it feels very different to the Klingons in TNG, which... I don't know, I liked the Klingons in TNG. I thought they were really interesting at their best. Cut to the Shenzhou. That's the Federation ship's name, the Shenzhou, USS Shenzhou. And they discover that the ship is covered in coffins, which again, very 40k. Uh, the science officer continues to want to leave. See, uh, he explains that his species, uh, for its evolutionary history, was hunted and then husbanded and bred as some sort of mix between cattle and guard dogs, I guess. So he reckons that he can sense better, uh, he can he can sense danger better than this human whose genetic ancestors were also prey animals until they figured out how pointy sticks and pack hunting worked. Joking aside, I love everything about this guy and his performance, especially in this section. He is very good. Uh, and he got a specific line I'm going to call out. We were bred with one purpose, to sense the coming of death. I sense it now. Oh man, that's good. I can feel the terror in this person. It's wonderful. Uh, cut to the captain in a meeting with the hollow admiral. That's the holographic admiral. Uh, the first officer comes in and recommends open hostility and violence and killing against this ship, which so far, let's be clear, has taken literally no action. Like, they ha they're not answering their hails, but they're just literally doing nothing. So the Admiral and the Captain appear both to have misgivings, but also want to maintain more caution, while Commander Burnham just wants to burn things. Just as they're disagreeing, a bunch of real bright lights flood into the ship, and they're told it's a one billion lumens per square meter. And you know what that means? It's math time. Uh, lumens, real measurement of light, and given both this and the area affected, we don't have time, which would be the other thing, but it's something like 10 megawatts of light radiation per square meter. M megawatts. Uh, now, given the time frame of maybe a few seconds here between when they first see it and when the, the ensign, I guess, tells them it's, t it's this many numbers. Uh, that's maybe a couple of seconds, so I'm confidently calling this amount of energy a lot. This, uh, effectively blinds the whole ship, and also, uh, an increasingly freaked out commander calls her dad, I guess? Uh, who is the Vulcan man we saw in the flashback. He reckons that the Klingons probably have some sort of populist leader. Some sort of evil populist leader who wants to make the Klingon Empire great again. Side note, I like that the acronym for that is Mkga, which uh, kind of sounds Klingon. That's kind of fun. And after a warning that her assumptions shouldn't be driven by her past, he nonetheless informs her 
that the Vulcans ended up always firing on Klingon vessels on contact anytime they saw them, because that was the most logical thing to do, and that's what achieved diplomatic relations between them. Because they spoke Klingon, as it were, right? This is how the commander puts it. Because we learn this in the next scene where the captain and the first officer have a disagreement about whether to destroy that ship full of people who've done literally nothing. The captain, unimpressed by her first officer's insubordination, orders her to the ready room where they continue their disagreement. Commander Burnham, disappointed that she isn't going to get her way, decides to Vulcan death grip the captain? Go back to the bridge and order the crew to fire on the ship, uh, on the Klingon ship, killing thousands for the crime of doing, again, I will stress here, literally nothing. Go, America. Uh, uh, the science officer correctly identifies that this is mutiny, but such is the commander's authority that the rest of the crew just sort of fall in line. As the captain wakes up and levels her phaser at the first officer, ordering her again to stand down. And just then, here's the Klingon reinforcements who arrive and hold position in front of the Shenju. And fade to black, roll credits. Whoo! Okay, so that was... That was fine. Uh, you know, I liked... <sighs> That was fine. It was okay. It was a perfectly okay show. I liked watching it. Uh, I liked the science officer and wanted to see more of him. I, I like that he's a sort of anti-Worf in the sense that he'll... He seems like he'll always push for the cautious option uh, as opposed to Worf who will push for the violent option all the time. And I kind of hope he doesn't get Worfed in the sense that his sole purpose becomes telling the audience that there's peril approaching before fading away into the into doing nothing. I also like the captain a lot. She seems to be a friendlier but just as commanding presence as Picard, and I like Picard because Picard is the best. Fight me. Uh, I like how the three senior officers play off each other and each seem to clearly respect each other even as they disagree. It seems collegiate if a little stressy. Except, except for Commander Burnham, who is introduced as demeaning to her fellow uh, senior officers and constantly insubordinate to her captain right from the get-go. Uh, what? Okay, so let's start with my positives about her. I, I do... What I like about her presentation, she's clearly terrified, and this is clearly affecting her judgment, even while she believes that it doesn't. But I'm watching a woman become increasingly panicked, increasingly worried, increasingly convinced that the that the lives of all of the people on the ship, the people she loves, are about to just end right then and there because she didn't make the right call. And I... I have some sympathy for her, even as she tries to mutiny. So, so far, this pilot episode has confirmed a few of my fears, though. Uh, what I really liked about TNG is the philosophical bent, which seems to run through every episode. I don't see a lot of that here. Uh, I feel like this episode might have been a whole lot better if we hadn't been shown the Klingons at all 
Like, let the uncertainty permeate until it feels oppressive. Let us wonder, well, maybe what are they going to do? Well, who are the Klingons? I don't know what, anything about these Klingons. What are they, right? If, you, if you're worried about people just getting into Star Trek, I get you having a couple lines of, like, the Klingons are the same people who killed my parents, and they're the same people who 100 years ago were terrorizing the galaxy when they were actually an empire. Yeah, they're they're a danger. We need to deal with them. Having the episode be about getting the crew to agree to a course of action, I think would have been real interesting. As it stands, I think a lot of the Klingon stuff, it could have waited an episode maybe, but also I'm only one episode and maybe it gets better later. But I feel like they undercut a lot of the drama right away because the first thing we see is, look at these Klingons, they are a threat. And that means that we as an audience know that there is a threat, that the threat is real, that it is coming. And then we cut to the people who are uncertain about the threat that's coming or whether there even is a threat. And we have to buy their uncertainty. So am I supposed to feel for Captain Burnham? Because I should also be certain, as certain as they are, that the, I, this is what I mean. It's it. The show is desperately trying to get me to relate to Commander Burnham. And I just don't. I just don't. I find her unreasonable and uh, I find her a little grating and irritating, but I love the captain. I want everything about the captain, right? I I just, I, but I do understand her fear. And I think that had you not done the Klingons at all, had you not shown them until right at the end, maybe, then I might have had a lot more sympathy for how afraid the commander is, Right. Show the show the flashback even. I got nothing against flashbacks. Anyway, I feel like uh, it, it's easy enough to go in hindsight, though. It's easy enough to look at something once it's completely finished and go, ah, well, this is the way I would have done it. I don't know the way I would have done it if I were looking at the same script even. You know what I mean? But uh, I don't know. I, that, we'll get to overall in a minute. I'm just going to go through the rest of my actual notes. Um... Speaking of the Klingons, again, having them all speak Klingon all the time is a nice flavor, but I found it got old pretty quick, and it doesn't sound to me like the actors had enough time to prepare, uh, as the, the language doesn't sound integrated into their speech very well. I, I think they just didn't have enough time to work. Uh, you know, it's TV. These things are tight schedules, right? Uh, but overall, I started kind of lukewarm and ended up feeling a bit more positively toward the show by the end. Uh, even if I think there are a lot of problems, I, I started feeling like, oh man, I want to see the next episode now. So, you know, after I finished editing here, I might just go, uh, might just go back and watch an episode. Yeah, I might not make a show about that one, but just to, just to do something for myself for a change, you know? And, uh, also let's, let's just address the elephant in the room for a second. The Orwell which is a show that I've seen four or five episodes of and am super impressed by. The Orwell is a better Star Trek show than Star Trek Discovery, from what I've seen so far. So again, one episode of Star Trek Discovery is what I've seen, and four or five episodes of The Orwell is what I've seen. So I don't know, maybe there's, overall there's a different picture, but this this is my opinion. So it, The Orwell gets the TNG format, in a way that this show doesn't, or they committed to doing the TNG format 
in a way that this show didn't want to. I think there's maybe a mix of both happening, right? I think Discovery has maybe missed a little bit about what makes Star Trek really good. Like, it's if you're going to have big space battles, that's not really what a lot of TNG is about. Like, I could maybe count the big space battles on one hand in the whole of TNG, right? And, you know, I it's not to say Orwell is a perfect show either. I, I'll finish with that on this note. It, uh, there's a bunch of characters in there that annoy me. The captain in particular, I find a little bit strange and not my thing. But I, I, mostly I just like, if you're going to do TNG, I want Picard. And he doesn't, he's not a Picard to me, at least in the first season when I saw. But I suppose my closing thoughts are that if Star Trek Discovery didn't have Star Trek written on it, I'd consider it an enjoyable and competently made sci-fi show that I'd probably want to watch a bunch of. But it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like Star Trek to me, and that's kind of what I look for in a Star Trek Thanks for joining me on this solo episode of One for Paul. I'm super glad that all of you are enjoying these. If you'd like me, uh, if you'd like to help out the show, you can throw us a couple of bucks on the crowdfunding page Patreon at patreon.com slash one for Paul. If you'd like to say hi and tell me what you thought of the show or maybe why my opinions are wrong, you could do that on Twitter at one for Paul. But more than anything, if you know some folks who might enjoy the show, just tell them about us. Send them a link. Say, hey, I got this podcast I listen to, and maybe you also would like the podcast that I listen to. Listen to the podcast. You can find them at One for Paul. <laughs> I've been One for, I've, I've been One for Paul. I've been Paul, <laughs> the original non-pop culturist, and I'll see you next time. The thing is some kind of thing.